1968, Apollo 8 went to the moon. circle the moon and I was watching it on television and at a certain point one of the astronauts casually said we're going to turn the camera around and show you the earth and he did and that was the first time I had ever seen the planet hanging in space like that and it was profound. I think that for me like for many other people it was quite a shock. I don't think any of us had any expectations about how it would give us such a different perspective. I think the focus had been, we're going to the stars, we're going to the other planets, and suddenly we look back at ourselves and it seems to imply um, a new kind of self-awareness. One of the astronauts said, when we originally went to the moon, our total focus was on the moon. We weren't thinking about looking back at the Earth. But now that we've done it, that may well have been the most important reason we went. Isn't that an amazing sight to see that? Some of you might remember that shot in 1968. I was not yet born, but some of you were. <laughs> it's not that funny. Um, <laughs> Maybe it is. But it was a profound thing in 1968, the first time that we ever saw the earth in real time, in real vision that we could see for thousands and thousands of years. Men and women have theorized and hypothesized about what it looked like and imagined what it looked like, starting with Aristotle, who first proposed that perhaps it was round and not flat. And they became, went on and on from there, figuring out various ways to try to know what it meant, what it looked like. But all that they really knew, and all that we really knew until this day, was that we could only know as much of the earth as we could see from where we stood to as far as we could see. And that's all we really could know. Those scientists tried to tell us different. Even philosophers tried to tell us differently. But we couldn't really know. I'll tell you what this is called. This is called a big reveal. Have you ever heard this expression? Surely you have. That in any story or movie, there is a point in the story where you think you know what's going on and you're following a plot line and then something happens in the story that turns everything or opens everything up to you. And that's a big reveal. And it shows you, oh, that's the story. That's what it's about. It's also used by magicians uh, to uh, show tricks. And then they do this big reveal and show you the big trick. And I practiced a few tricks to try to reproduce that today, but didn't work out. I'm just not that good of a musician, uh, a musician or a magician, but, but as a magician, I totally failed. And, and so I gave up on that idea. But this idea, this is an even better example of it. It's a great example of a big reveal. Now, the great thing about the big reveal, this big reveal, is that it was there all the time, right? 
It, was, it looked like that every single moment since the beginning in Genesis where we know that God created the heavens and the earth. On this same Apollo mission, they read, it was on Christmas Eve in 1968 when this mission took place. And the three astronauts in Apollo 8, they read the creation story from the Bible. Can you imagine a day when that would happen? It did happen. And they read it and looking at the earth, I remember this day, looking at the earth and hearing that story that God told, that Moses recorded, was profound, especially to see that. Now, I know that some of you who were born well after 1968 hear that and think, really? You guys didn't know it looked like that? How could that be? But it's almost always true that we make assumptions about what things really are. We make assumptions about what is going on. When, an, when the big reveal of those assumptions can prove us either very right or very wrong, which is one of the things about Palm Sunday that we want to understand. You've heard this already today, but Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Just a second there, that's always been going on since the moment God created the heavens and the earth. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. This is the greatest and first apologetic we have for God. This is the first understanding that God is who he said he is. He is a creator God and that is a big reveal for us to know that about God. There is a sense in when you consider this that we realize just exactly kind of our role in the midst of all this. Because you can look up on the stars at night and realize that man, there's a whole lot more here than just me. And if it doesn't do that to you, then you're not in the right place to look at the right scene because there is a profound sense of the, of the enormity of the universe and our place in it that we get when we look at situations like this, when we look at the sky this way. Theodore Roosevelt, as you know, was a president of the United States, and he had a friend named William Beebe who was kind of one of the most uh, fascinating naturalists that we've ever had in this country. He not only knew astronomy, but he also was one of the first guys to go down to the farthest depths of the ocean in a bathosphere. And, and so he was a great explorer, and Roosevelt was an explorer too, and a naturalist. And these guys would get together on a reg regular basis, and they'd go to Roosevelt's home at Sagamore Hill. And almost every time they were together, they would go out at night, and they would look up at the stars and see who could find the Andromeda uh, strain first up in the sky. And then one of them would say to the other these well-rehearsed words that they had in their relationship one, with one another. Whoever spotted it first got to say this, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. 
It's as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It is 75,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And then Roosevelt would grin and say, now I think we are small enough, let's just go to bed. Sometimes you have to see the enormity of something to see again where you fit into it. Just three missions later with the Apollo program and Apollo 11, when they went, the, they actually landed on the moon and they took with them a disc that had goodwill messages from the earth. I looked these up this week and it's fascinating. You can Google this and see all the different world leaders that left goodwill messages for whoever might find this someday on the moon outside of our own solar system. And, among, and these world leaders, none of whom are world leaders today, wrote these things. But they included some scripture in this. You want to know what that scripture was, I bet. Psalm 8, what you heard already. When I consider your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? It's a fairly haunting question. Who is, what is man that you are mindful of him? Have you ever had that thought when you think of God? Do you think that God is just your servant that has to do whatever you want him to do? What is man, the psalmist says, that you are mindful of him? And so it begs the question then, so why this planet? Why these people? the Jews? Why this woman, Mary? Why this region, Palestine? Why this time, occupation? Why this political system, system an oppressive Roman government? Why this way, a baby? Why this life, carpenter? Why this death, a cross? Why this God? These questions include a theological statement that, that philosophers and theologians have used for many hundreds of years. These questions all fit into a category called the scandal of particularity. I love this, this phrase. You can Google it and find out all these things about it, but the scandal of particularity. What this would say, the particular way that God chose to come into this world and live out the mission to get to a cross and get to a grave, that is a scandal of particularity, theologians have said. Because Christianity is different than any other belief system in its particularity. It espouses different per perspective than anything else we'll encounter through any other religion or, philo or philosophical system. You might say, you know, you know that in Buddhism, uh, Gautama, Gautama, he became enlightened to the way of salvation. Muhammad discovered the way of salvation through the law that had been given by the prophets. Jesus came and said, I am the way of salvation. 
Very different. It's, it's a particular way. And Jesus said, I am the way. There is no other way to the Father except through me. That is the scandal of particularity. So here's the big reveal that we have in this holy week, that God visited this planet. Now, did he visit other planets? I think he did. Because if you were God and you could do that, wouldn't you visit other planets? Do we know that life only exists on this planet? We don't know that. Now, I know you're going to write me notes about this, and I hope to, hope to receive them. Because I always learn something when you inform me of the fact that God could have only come here. He only loved us, you know. But when God did visit this planet, we do know that much because it's historically proven that Jesus Christ lived on this earth at this particular time in history and events of his life were recorded outside of scripture even at this particular time in history with these particular people. If you read the Gospel of Luke, he makes it very clear in the way that he names times and dates and people who were rulers and other people that could have known the story. We know that God visited this planet at this particular time in this particular way. And the big reveal, though, is that there is a plot twist to the way the story was thought to be unfolding. The way the people of God, the, the Jewish people, thought the way the story was going to work out, it changed from the way they thought. There's this continuing process in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant where there is a narrowing of focus that God has with his people. He starts with people and, and you go through Moses and Abraham and, and the Jewish people and the remnant and it all begins to focus on one person at one time and that one person at one time would come after 400 years of silence into the person of Jesus Christ himself. And the home office shows up and the commander shows up and God shows up because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the commander shows, shows up and it's a different kind of perspective. For those of you who have been in the military, like Chris, I know, you know, anytime you're going about doing your thing, if you're, if you're a soldier or a sailor and the commander is coming to where you are, it is not ever hardly a good thing, right? You don't ever want to see this guy. You know, there was a time in my life where the commander, the supreme commander of NATO was General Alexander Haig. And, and from time to time, he would come to the place where we were. He was based in Belgium at that time. But he would come to where we were. And any time we got news that he was coming, it was not a good thing. Because it meant for weeks, everything had to be scrubbed or painted. If it didn't move, it had to be painted. You know, if it could be scrubbed, it was scrubbed. And, and then when he got there, usually it was just a three-minute experience, you know, where he would walk through and then he was gone or he would come a couple of times and just yell at people. And then he, and I mean him, no disrespect. He was a great commander, but he would just yell at a couple of people and then be gone. It was never a good thing. I didn't look forward to his visits. And that's kind of what I think the Jewish people expected to happen to a certain extent that the, that Jesus or the Messiah was going to come. And when he does, he's going to clean house. 
And with that cleaning house, they're going to be okay, but everybody else is not going to be okay. But you had to wonder how it was going to go. But there's this big reveal that's actually been there all the time that they had missed. It's in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 40. And in this prophecy, Isaiah says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These words were there all the time for them. That God is not coming in anger. God is coming as a redeemer, as the Lamb of God, as the one who will forgive them double what they have sinned. And this generous, extravagant God that Pastor Matt talked about last week would come and redeem his people in a profound way. That was there all the time. It had been revealed but they didn't see it because the part that they probably missed the most was the big reveal that Isaiah actually even uses the word because God coming in his mercy, the big reveal is that so that the glory of the Lord could be displayed. The glory of the Lord is in his mercy that he has demonstrated because only someone with great power has the capacity to forgive greatly. And that's why he came, that's how he came. We know this from the New Testament because John says it in this way. It's like John realizes the truth of this when he says in John 1:14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. It was more than they could have hoped for because it's the scandal of particularity. And I know what you're thinking, that I've been up here for 15 minutes and I've yet to get to the actual text this morning. There's a reason for that because you know what? The story of Palm Sunday is pretty much self-contained. It is the point. It is truly the big reveal. And so let's look at that text right now. It's in your Bible uh, in, in uh, Matthew 21, it's in every gospel as a matter of fact. And I wanna just, as you're finding it or getting your worship guide or your device and finding this text, I wanna tell you that with this text and with this story, there's so many things going on here in, in what God is doing and how he is preparing his people for this news that they cannot imagine is actually gonna happen. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as a king, and while he comes from the Hebrew people, he is gonna tell them a message that's hard for them to understand, and they won't really get until much later, and that is he's coming for all the world, not just for the Hebrew people. That's gonna be a big reveal that's gonna take some disciples a lot of unpacking before they can ever get their heads around it. 
But Jesus comes in in a profound way in Matthew 21. Let me read this for you. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, this is Zechariah 9, 9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, put on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There's some amazing facts about this story in Scripture. First of all, that all four gospel writers tell this story. They each tell it in a little different way. Some of them omit certain facts. Matthew's the only one that tells us that it's, it's uh, both a cult and its mother. And others uh, actually give, Luke gives actual dialogue that Jesus says, in fact, I've always thought this is pretty, pretty funny, that Jesus says, you know, go into the village and say the Lord has need of it. And then Luke repeats that, you know, he goes in, they find the colt and, and he says, the Lord has need of it. And he says, okay, take it. You know, he gives much more explanation because he's trying to be very precise in it. Matthew is much more interested in, in us seeing that this is the fulfillment of prophecy that's going on. And that this has been promised for a long time and he wants you to take note that it's happening just exactly the way that God determined and said that it would particularly happen. The scandal of particularity is in place here. And, and with all four gospel writers giving us this account, they're telling us also that this week coming up from now through Easter Sunday, this is the most important part of the story, and we must be careful not to miss it. If this part of the story is not true, then Paul says we are the most foolish people in the world. We have other things we could be doing on this Sunday morning. If this part of the story is not true, none of the rest of it matters. You can say Jesus was a great moral teacher, he was. You can say Jesus was a very wise man, he was. But if Jesus did not go to a cross and die and then raise again three days later, it's a moot point. It doesn't matter. So each gospel writer tells us this story in great detail because they are leading up to this big, the biggest reveal of all. And so we have these overt, particular prophecies that we have to see coming to pass that Daniel 9, 26 and 27 
would say it would be exactly 483 years from the time the prophecy made until Jesus would ride through the eastern gates in Jerusalem on a donkey. That Zechariah would say would come, he would come on a donkey because this is an, this, a donkey was, was a beast, not only a beast of burden, but a symbol of peace and service. And Zechariah is saying that the, there is humility in that. That Isaiah would say that this is the Lamb of God who is coming into the city of Jerusalem. And then the psalmist even in Psalm 24 would say that, that the gates are even lifted up. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. The psalmist, this is a messianic psalm, and the psalmist wants to make sure that we see that there will be a Messiah who will come through these gates, that even the physical aspects of it around Jesus coming in would stand up and take notice. Because as he would say, quiet your disciples. And, and Jesus said, if I do, the rocks will cry out. If I do. Even the rocks were aware that day. Even the gates were aware that day of what was going on. Everything was taking notice with the exception of some of the people in the crowd. Only things that weren't taking notice of what really was happening here. The fact the particular details of this include this donkey, like I say. Do you know much about donkeys? Have you ever ridden a donkey? They're a funny animal. I, I spent some time this week on the American Donkey and Mule Society website. You can look this up and check me on this. Just because I wanted to know more about donkeys. Um, and just to see what do we know about donkeys. And there's a lot, turns out there's a lot we know about donkeys. I'm not going to... I'm not going to encourage you with those facts this morning, but you can look it up for yourself. But I've, I've ridden a donkey, and uh, I promised that I never would do it again after doing that. You know, back when I was a much younger man, for reasons that I'm, sh I'm still not sure uh, what anyone was thinking in doing this, there was such a thing as donkey basketball. Have you ever seen a donkey basketball? Some of you are shaking your head. You know, we had, somebody came up with this idea that it would be really wonderful if I was working in law enforcement at the time, if the, if the guys in law enforcement got on donkeys and the fire department guys got on donkeys and we played basketball against each other. And you should never do that, let me just tell you. It makes both you and the donkey look ridiculous. And I swore that day I would never be on a donkey again, but I'm so thankful that donkeys are a part of the story because donkeys are a really unique thing that God has made in this world. And again, the fact that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey was a symbol of the fact that he was coming in peace. You do not go into battle on the back of a donkey. If you're going to go into battle and you're going to ride anything, you're going to ride a horse. You're not going to ride a donkey. So Jesus was making it clear that he was coming in a different way, in a peaceful way. The very fact that it would be particularly stated that the Lord has need of it. 
And they would go and they would tell the owners of this donkey, the Lord has need of it. And they would just say, great, take it, take it. Would show you that a lot of, a lot of planning had gone on by God for this to take place. People didn't easily give up their donkeys then or now. And so there had been a lot of thought. There was a lot of thought even with the crowd. And I wanna to talk to you just for a minute about the crowd. And you've no doubt heard a lot of the stories of you know, people lining both sides of the road. It's estimated because this was Passover, there could have been up to two million people in Jerusalem at that time, making their way to Jerusalem. Because it was the feast that, of all feasts, you know, it was the celebration that they had been passed over by the angel of death. And so the city was full of people. And Jesus at this point was a rock star. I mean, he had crowds, massive crowds following him. He had always up until this point though, shied away from anybody making a big deal of who he was. I mean, when they would try to say, you're the king, Jesus would just suddenly disappear. Where'd he go? You know, he's not here anymore. And Jesus would heal people. He would heal lame people and blind people and deaf people. And he would say, but don't, don't tell anybody. It's just between us. Go tell the priest. Don't tell anybody else. And so Jesus had kept it on the down low all along the way because he was building up to a big reveal that would happen in Jerusalem. And so in this, as he goes through that city that day, and the crowds are lining the road, that there are a number of things that happen next. And I wanna tell you what happens next and come back to the crowd. We're wrapping up, we're headed for the barn here, I promise. But over the next few days, before Thursday, there are several things that Jesus does. The very next day, he goes in and cleans out the temple of the people who are keeping others from worshiping God. And then he goes through a number of controversial speeches that he gives that, uh, that bring out the inconsistencies and hypocrisies of the people who were the keepers of the law. And then he preaches a sermon on judgment. And in this sermon on judgment, he gives this example that one day the shepherd would come and he would separate the sheep from the goats. And, and in that, in so doing that he would say to the goats, you are, I never knew you and the sheep he would bring unto himself. And it had to be a hard thing to hear that day. You can read that for yourself in Matthew 25. But to come back to the crowd for a moment. You know, I, I grew up kind of thinking that this was all one crowd and, it, and thinking how in the world could this crowd be standing and saying Hosanna one day and just a few days later be yelling out crucify him. And I've come to the side of many other folks who say, no, I don't think it, I think it was two crowds. I don't think it was the same people saying crucify him as saying Hosanna. I think it was the sheep saying Hosanna. And I think it was the goats in the crowd saying crucify him. And you know how people are. Everything they saw Jesus doing, the sheep just got sheepier and the goats just got goatier. And so they were each pursuing and affirming and confirming what they already believed about what was going on here. 
This latter group of the goats would be what, who Peter would later refer to in Acts chapter 2 as those who were lawless men, although they were the keepers of the law. They were the ones that could go around or through the law to get what they wanted accomplished. Common people didn't have access to that kind of power. I think they were the sheep. That's who Jesus came for. We reveal much about ourselves by the crowd that we choose to be a part of. Have you gone to see the movie A Wrinkle in Time? Some of you are looking at me like, don't believe in movies. I understand. This movie, I went to it with great expectations. It's a movie that's based on a book that Madeline Langle wrote back in 1963. It was published, and I loved this book as a teenager. I still do. It's one of those books that's fascinating. Just the name itself, A Wrinkle in Time. Madeline Langle, who had pursued an understanding of faith for a number of years. I mean, she's a, she's a very fascinating writer and great thinker. And she had tried to come to a point of faith and she had gone to some religious people and said, you know, how can I understand the, the vastness of God? And they said, read German theologians, which she did and it just discouraged her further and from people like Immanuel, Immanuel Kant and others like that because they tried to uh, negate the vastness of God and put it in terms that could be easily understood. And then she met Albert Einstein and Max Planck, theoretical physicists. And they challenged her to look bigger, to ask more cosmic questions, which she began to do. And then so she went on to come to faith in Christ And she said that her conversion was not a Damascus Road experience, but it was rather an intellectual acceptance of what her intuition had already known. And in an interview she did some years ago, she's since passed and gone to heaven, which actually in her her reasoning was not somewhere up there in the sky. It was a step over here. It was a wrinkle. It's a wrinkle in time. And I love that perspective, and I think she's right. You'll write me about that too, I know. But uh, I think she's right. It's just the thing that eternity, if Jesus prayed, let me just make one little case for it here. If Jesus said, on earth as it is in heaven, how do you take that? You know, it's just a wrinkle that we can't see. It's been here all along, but we don't have the eyes to see it yet. We'll talk about that someday, maybe, or you might not let me. So we'll see. But... Here's the thing that Madeline Engel said, that when she came to this perspective of how God works by looking into the cosmos, she said this, I am a particular incarnationalist. I believe that we can only understand cosmic questions only through particulars. I can understand God only through one specific particular, the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the ultimate particular, which gives me my understanding of the creator and of the beauty of life. I believe that God loved us so much that he came to us as a human being, as one of us, to show us his love. I didn't like the movie, I'll just tell you. Because you know what, in the movie, and I know they were trying hard and it's beautifully filmed and there's lots of beautiful color and whatnot. Still has Meg, they're still tessering, you can look that up, it's, it's a fascinating thing, I want to do it. Uh, and, and, but it still has all that, but they left out the most important parts of the book. 
The most important part of the book was the way Meg, and if you haven't seen it or read the book, you don't know what I'm going to talk about here, but, but Meg goes looking for her father who's been captured by evil. That's a common story, isn't it? But the big reveal in the story that she gave was both the wrinkle in time, being able to step into another dimension, but what got her through that other dimension is love itself. A character that didn't even make it into the movie, Mrs. Hers, is, is, is the one who tells her 1 Corinthians 13 and says these three things will remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, and love is found in Christ alone. I didn't make it in the movie. I don't know why. But it should make it into us because that is the story of Palm Sunday. It was for love's sake that Jesus got on that donkey and rode through Jerusalem. It was for love's sake that he spoke to those religious authorities, that he cleaned out the temple, that he spoke of judgment. It was for love's sake that he gathered with his disciples in the upper room, washed their feet. It was for love's sake that he went to the cross. It was for love's sake that he went to a tomb. And it was for love's sake that he rose again. But we can't get there today. We're still in Palm Sunday. Don't miss this week. Don't miss the significance of it day to day. Take extra time and ponder the cosmic nature of what God has done here that manifests itself in the particular work that he would do in your life. Don't miss this week. We wanna encourage you to, there are cards back in the foyer that have the Easter service times. I encourage you to pick those up and, and uh, give them out to people this week. Don't presume that you know who God wants to come and hear the Easter message. Just give them away, leave them. Don't leave them as a tip in a restaurant unless you leave a lot of cash with it. But give those cards to people and just invite them and just say, I'll be there, I hope you will too. Just invite them, pick those cards up and just give them away. And let's pray that God will bring a lot of people here to hear this good news message next Sunday, next weekend. And so as you're pondering how you'll do that over the course of the week, let me give you one more word and then we're going to do a benediction and we'll, we'll go and process out of here. At the uh, conclusion of this service, there'll be folks in the front of this room praying as well as online and, and they're praying for you and would love to pray about any need at all you have in your life. We encourage you, even if, uh, if you want to know how you can get connected or if you want to know how you can volunteer for next weekend, stop in the connection team back there. will help you. Online ministers will tell you that as well. We'd love to get you here, you folks who are local and online. We'd love for you to come. I know it's a hassle. We're kind of a pain in the neck over here in Longwood, but we'd love for you to come anyway. We'll be really friendly to you if you'll come. We hope you will. But I want to give you one last triumphal procession word as a benediction today. And uh, if you would stand, uh, I'll read this passage for you. This is 
Paul is writing this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14, and it's the first time that any of these guys mention the triumphal procession that goes, that happens in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But Paul refers to it knowing that they will know what he's talking about. And I give these words to you that he gave to them. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in the triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Do you get this? That you are the aroma of God. And so, brothers and sisters, if the world stinks, it's your fault. (laughs) So let's go from this place and be that aroma to the world that desperately is sniffing everywhere to find it. Go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. There's revival and it's spreading like a wildfire in my heart. A Sunday morning.